Right. Oh, here is a clicker as well, by the way. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to Conway Hall. I'm sorry about this slightly delayed start today. We had uh, quite a lot of you coming in, and I didn't want to uh, give, uh, give anyone the opportunity to miss the fabulous tea, coffee, and biscuits that we've laid out for you today. Um, my name's Carmen de Cruz. I'm one of the trustees here, and it is my absolute pleasure to welcome you here today. For those who haven't been to Conway Hall before, this is the home of ethical thinking. Uh, we are the oldest organisation and charity now, um, specialising in humanist ethical principles. Um, there's only one other building in the world like this in New York and they're nowhere near as good. Um, we, we do some really, really fabulous talks so I really love how many of you are here today to be able to support um, these talks. So uh, the talk that you're about to watch today is actually a continuation of the Sunday lectures that have been going for a really, really, really long time. Um, and uh, so I'm really proud to be able to announce them. Um, it's something, it's a sociable event and it, you know, it expands the mind and it's just something really fun to do on a Sunday. Um, so anyway, uh, I would be remiss of my duties if I did not mention that you could become an annual member of Conway Hall for £35 a year. Um, that helps to keep these talks going and also helps to pay for repairs. Um, we're quite a lot cheaper than the Barbican, just saying. Um, uh, but it, yeah, it really is. Um, I, I've been a member here for quite a long time and I, I love it here. It's, it is my favourite place in London, um, apart from my bed, of course. Anyway, on that note, um, it is my pleasure to introduce David Robert Grimes today. He'll be discussing his latest book, The Irrational Ape, showing us how we can be lured into making critical mistakes or drawing false conclusions and how to avoid such errors. Given the power of modern science and the way that movements can unite to protest a cause via social media, we are in dangerous times. But fortunately, we can learn from our mistakes and by critical thinking and scientific method, we can discover how to apply these techniques from, to everything from deciding what insurance to buy to averting global disaster. Um, Normally, these books cost eighteen ninety nine. However, our local bookseller, um, uh, based at the Word down in New Cross, is selling them for a reduced price. They're normally eighteen ninety nine. We're selling them for sixteen pounds today, and he takes cash and card. So, if you'd like to get a copy, you can get it signed in the interval. Please do so today, because once they're gone, they're gone. Anyway, please can you give a lovely, warm Conway, Conway Hall welcome to David Robert Grimes. <laughs> So I'm, I'm usually pretty loud, so even without this I should be audible, but if at any stage I can't be heard, please scream at me and I will continue on. Usually in these kind of events, people are very polished and prepared and have put a lot of effort into this. I finished this presentation this morning when I was still drunk, and there's, uh, <laughs> I'm a bit more sober now, but there's a good chance that it, it, it should be interesting, I hope, um, and I'll see if it's coherent at the end. So we're going to talk a little bit about critical thinking today, um, living up to national stereotype, of course, I'm aware of that. Um, let's see if the clicker works. First start of a day, first challenge. See, that's the problem, down goes the other way. So I'm, I, I kind of want to start off by why all this matters a little bit, because that's the first kind of question. Critical thinking is an abstract concept. What does it matter? Does anyone know who this gentleman is? It's actually the same guy, just young and handsome and old and handsome in, the, in this picture here. This man uh, was called, uh, he died in 2017. His name was Stanislav Petrov, and he worked in this place, which is Sepikov 15. It's a bunker just outside Moscow. And in 1983, he was the, the, uh, the duty officer on command there. And he was essentially looking after the OKO, which was the uh, Russian Missile Early Warning System. 
And these were really fraught times. At this stage, America and the USSR, as it was then, were at complete loggerheads. Just a few weeks before, a civilian flight had been shot down by, uh, by, the, by the Russian forces and killed a congressman on board. Uh, Reagan had denounced the USSR as an evil empire, and the Kremlin wasn't particularly happy with all the uh, missile defense sites going up across Europe. So these were very, very fraught times. On that September morning, the alarm started sounding at Sepikov 15. Five American missiles were inbound, so the unthinkable had become reality and war had begun. Now everyone inside that crucible, their job was to scramble that message to Soviet high command, who would inevitably have had to reply with the show of force. Now, it's very likely that Russia would have been wiped out, but they too, if they had struck quickly enough, could hit America and do the same damage. And this was the doctrine of mutually assured destruction. This was what had to happen. That didn't happen, as you might know. We're, we're not uh, living in a post-apocalyptic wasteland. And the reason it didn't happen was this man. So in that relentless crucible of pressure, he looked at the data in front of him. Everyone is saying, you have to ring Soviet high command now. He picked up the phone, made a few inquiries when everyone was yelling at him, and he made a different phone call. He phoned the different duty officer and said, our detector's broken. And everyone thought he was insane. And all they could do, he was duty officer, all they could do was wait to see whether he was correct or whether they were incinerated. They were not. What had actually happened was he, the detector had picked up reflections off low cloud. It had picked up cloud reflections as, um, as the signal of incoming missiles. Now, instead of being rewarded for this, Petrov was reprimanded and scapegoated for the failures of a thing. And uh, as Soviet architecture often did, they pointed the finger at him. He eventually retired in relative obscurity. But the reason he didn't make that call is he just thought critically about it for a few moments. He said, if America are going to strike, they would have to strike in force. They would have to try and get the advantage by overwhelming us. A paltry five missiles? That's a lot from that. The phone call he made was to check, is there any sign of this on the ground radar, which was an older, more reliable technology? The ground radar didn't see it. Weighing up the probabilities, Petrov said, you know what, I don't think I'm going to end the world today. <laughs> um, and, and, and this is, he died in 2017, and th these records were only declassified in the late 1990s, but even up to his death, he just said, I was just doing my job. Perhaps so, but just think of a less reflective individual had been in command. We would not be sitting here having this talk, because this building probably wouldn't exist. Um, but that wasn't even the worst kind of close call of the Cold War. It, something even more dangerous happened in October 1962 with another handsome Russian. This man up here is, uh, is, 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 is Vasily Arkhipov. Now, the Cuban Missile Crisis w was at its height in October 1962, and that's a really bad photo of Khrushchev and Kennedy, who were engaging in frantic diplomacy to avoid World War III. But deep beneath this, the North Atlantic Ocean, World War III almost happened by itself. The Soviet submarine B-59 had dived too deep to communicate with Moscow because it was being pursued by a USS destroyer, the Randolph. And to try and make it uh, rise and identify itself, the Americans began dropping depth charges, which was un unsurprisingly interpreted as a bit of an aggressive action. Um, although they weren't actually primed, but it was still apparently like being inside a tin can with someone banging it with a sledgehammer. The cooling system had broken. It was 52 degrees centigrade inside the submarine. The water purification system had broken, and there was only um, one glass of water per crew member per day. Oxygen was low, carbon dioxide was high. These are not situations conducive to rational decision-making, the best of times. Um, the commander um, uh, decided, 
okay, we should strike. What they, what they didn't actually know, the American pursuers didn't know, is that the submarine had a 15 kiloton nuclear warhead in its arsenal. The Americans didn't know that. They had autonomy to deploy it if they couldn't communicate with Moscow, and the political officer and the captain agreed. Well, the political officer and the captain agreed. They were going to launch it. Look, we're going to be killed, but we're going to take out that destroyer because World War III has obviously already begun. Again, we're still here. So what happened? By just happenstance, the flotilla commander, Vasily Arkhipov, was also on board. Now, Arkhipov was well known for his bravery. He'd been on the K-19 Widowmaker of the year before where they had to plug a nuclear coolant leak and half the crew died. So his bravery was not in... And they did plug it in the end. His bravery was, was well respected in the Soviet military. Um, and he, because of his position of flotilla commander, was given an equal weighing. He had an equal voice. They needed all three of them to consent. And he refused to. And his rationale was very simple. He was, if we launch this warhead, we do begin a war. We don't know if a war is happening. We'd be much better off surfacing because here, here we're weighing up the balance of probabilities here. What will this action do versus this? He was shouted down. It ended up in a fist fight at one stage. But yet, um, as good old Soviet sailors are always, they love a good fist fight. Um, eventually, they surfaced and found out World War III hadn't begun. At this stage, Kennedy became aware of what was happening and they were allowed to return to Moscow unmolested. It wasn't until 1998 or so that they realized that they had a, a nuclear ar a weapon that was primed. So as, as, as Arthur M. Schlesinger Jr., the historian and politician said, this was not only the most dangerous moment of a Cold War, it was probably the most dangerous moment in human history. And as Thomas Blanton, director of the National Security Archive said, a guy called Vasily Arkhipov saved the world. Now, most of us here are not going to be in a position where we have to, um, you know, avert nuclear war. I mean, some of you might be, <laughs> but uh, I'm certainly not. But there's something we can learn from these two unsung Russians, and that is that the ability to crink, to crink, that's not a verb, the ability to think critically is absolutely vital. So I'm going to kind of get into where we now, because how do I put these kind of abstract stories into something more relevant, right? Although I like this story, so I'm putting it in first. I believe, is anyone, anyone a good bird spotter? Do you know what that, that bird is? If I've Googled correctly, it's a sparrow, but it may not be a sparrow. <laughs> uh, I think it is, but my father, who does know birds, would give out to me if it isn't, because someone said it was a house martin the other day, and I got really upset. Um, that's Mao Zedong. He's not a bird. <clears throat> and this is a bizarre story again about what happens when critical thinking fails. So in 1958, uh, China was, was rapidly trying to industrialize itself, and they decided to implement a policy called the Four Pests Program. And they decided they were going to get rid of uh, rats and the vectors of disease and all these horrible insects, most of them quite reasonably, flies, rats, fair enough. Um, but the last thing on their rogues gallery was the humble Eurasian tree sparrow. Now, tree sparrows don't vector any disease that we know of. Um, they were harmless. But the reason the Chinese authorities wanted rid of them is because they eat grain. And they had a political resonance. They were eating the grain the farmers had sown. So they were described as the animals of capitalism. Uh, they were a parasitic bourgeois feeding off the, the, the proletariat. So it, and it really did. That's what they were described as. And the idea was to make an example of them, which, you know, hey, look, it was 1958. <clears throat> and it was this kind of propaganda campaign to see here. They had the Great Sparrow Campaign, where they, uh, they, they mobilized forces million strong. In Beijing alone, three million people were mobilized to smash nests, to kill sparrows, to shoot them, to destroy them. And they were remarkably effective. 
For example, they used to ban, uh, bang pots and pans to, to frighten the poor birds so they'd fall out of the sky dead because they couldn't land. And they were doing this everywhere, except in the Polish mission in the middle of Beijing, which refused the mob entry. So all the sparrows flocked there. But even after two or three nights of, of banging on tins, even inside the embassy they died. And the Polish mission had to clean the corpses of sparrows off with shovels because they were several sparrows thick. Within the end of a year, they killed over a billion sparrows, rendering them virtually extinct in China. So mission successful, right? Not so much. They had been warned by some of the ornithologists that this was a bad idea. Mao Zedong had actually locked up the ornithologists that warned that it was a bad idea because they said their main diet isn't grain, it's insects, and specifically locusts. Without the, uh, <laughs> without the sparrow to eat locusts, their populations exploded and they, they raved all over China. Now, there'd already been other in terrible policies of the Great Leap Forward. Combined together with this final hit, it led to the Great Chinese Famine, which between 15 and 45 million people perished. This is what happens when critical thought becomes afterthought. And there's a lot of reasons why that decision was made. It had a political uh, resonance, obviously, and it was done without full cognizance of what can go wrong. And I think that kind of illustrates on a small scale, actually that's a huge scale, 15 to 45 million people is a lot of people. It actually, it, it, it's hard to even think of that number of people, but there you go. So there is something we have, to, and that comes from a seemingly innocuous kind of event, get rid of sparrows, well there's knock-on effects that has to be considered. So let's talk a little bit about that. Where are we today though, right? So I love this photograph of random stock image of screaming guy, I had to use it in something. So we live in a very different time. It's no longer 1958, 1959. But we're actually more susceptible than we ever have been to, to noxious influence of poor thinking. For example, we now all have social media, we all have the internet, and we all have highly partisan sources. So when we go onto Facebook or Twitter and you read a headline that eventually gets reported in your mainstream uh, newspapers as well, uh, what is the biggest single factor that decides whether information gets shared? Well, it turns out it's strong emotions. Um, things that perpetuate outrage, anger, fear, they get shared far more rapidly than things that are more sober-headed analysis. And that's a bit of a problem, because in other studies, we've seen that, and this is a beautiful uh, paper in, in, in uh, science in about two years ago. No, one year ago. It's 2019 now, isn't it? I can't count. <laughs> it's Unfortunately, they studied 126,000 uh, viral stories that had perpetuated around the planet and found that the vast majority of them were myths, rumors, misrepresentations, and all of which leads to increased polarization. Um, the more you knew, if you're being shared, something for the, if something's being shared to you to, to get you to react, to get you to emote before you think, that is a very, very precarious situation for us to be in. Um, at the same time, we're also living in, in uh, we, we talked about the USSR a while ago, but we now have a resurgence of, of Cold War geopolitics, if you will. And there's a beautiful thing called the, uh, the Russian fire hose model of falsehood which is that uh, vested actors in, in different in fields, and particularly from Russia, but not just from Russia, can send out high volumes of misinformation and indeed disinformation, desinformatia, which originally was a Russian term for good reason. They've been doing it a long time. We'll talk about that in a while. Um, and, and overwhelm us. It leads us into apathy, confusion, and as, as Paul Simon says, all lies in jest, still the man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. It inherently polarizes us. So instead of being able to even agree on basic facts, we are so overwhelmed by falsehoods that we, 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 the paradox of our time is we've never had better access to information and yet we've never been more susceptible to misinformation. Now the good news is we actually do have a natural weapon against this. 
And there is a, there's a, I just put one such study there. I, I occasionally just put the links to studies in because occasionally people take photographs and demand to ask or think I've made it up. I just throw one or two in, but there's loads more in the appendix of the book if you're really bored. But there is good news. We all have an inherent ability to think critically, to evaluate sources and to come to more rational conclusions. And that is the only real shield we have against the, the wealth of misinformation and confusion. We are facing unprecedented challenges from the uh, climate change and our relative inaction on that to antibiotic resistance to indeed the resurgence of this binary political system we all seem to have fallen into. And I will try not to me mention Brexit or Trump, but I'm going to end up mentioning Brexit or Trump because um, they're the obvious examples of this. So let's talk a little bit about, I'm going to break this now into like six major themes. Um, and I'm being very lazy because I'm copying the six major themes in the book. So it's very easy for me to do. I love this one. He will, this is the first one is about our ability to reason and, and rationality itself. So the old quote is, he who will not reason is a bigot, he who cannot is a fool, and he who dares not is a slave. And that was William Drummond, and the Scots might correct me on this, I think it's Logie Almond is how that's pronounced, because I spent a lot of time in the audiobook getting very upset trying to work out how to say that word. Um, but it's a nice little quote. So to give you an example how, how we all have the ability to reason, but it can be used against us, and an illusion of reason can be the... Uh, the vector for all sorts of dubious kind of inferences. So I'm not sure if many of you know this, but the medieval papacy and the pre-medieval papacy made George Orr Martin look like a children's book writer, right? Popes were killing each other left, right, and center. It was a wonderful time. <laughs> but one of the stories I love from that era was the trial of Pope Formosus. So Pope Formosus was put on trial by his successor, Stephen VI or Stephen VII. It depends how you count anti-popes. That's how complicated it all gets, right? And uh, Stephen was thundering accusations of perjury, fornication, all the fun things. He was just pointing at him and, and, and yelling this. And Formosus refused. He didn't react. He didn't even uh, acknowledge him, right? Um, and eventually Stephen turned to the audience and, and the learned men who were going to make the judgment and said, an innocent man would defend himself. The Pope has done no such thing, therefore he's guilty. And so guilty he was found. Though in Formosus' defense, he had been dead a full eight months before the trial actually begun. Now, they weren't going to take any chances. They cut off three of his fingers so he couldn't perform blessings, because, you know, corpses often perform blessings. They threw his corpse into the Tiber, which was retrieved by monks and briefly worshipped as a holy relic. Um, didn't work out that well for Stephen VI. Now, Stephen VI was no idiot. He was using a veneer of logic to a corrupted veneer of logic, and some of you will know that logical error and uh, the one he's using. Um, but it didn't really work out that well for Stephen because by the end of that summer, he t he'd been put into a cell and strangled to death in it. Um, I think he was later described as a wretch worthy of the rope and fire, which is great because it's like, you're such a bad person. I'm not just going to hang you. I'm going to burn you at the same time. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I mean, these guys really loved each other. But it was a naked cover for, uh, for, 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 pol for real naked politics or real politique or real politique. I don't know how it's pronounced. I really should learn how to pronounce that. But it the reason why that worked, and it, it seemed convincing to the jury of lay people, was because it was a veneer of logic. Obviously, there was plenty of other reasons why, you know, Pope Formosus... Oh, by the way, his, his, his papal name means handsome, which I think is brilliant, because I think eight months post-mortem, you're probably not going to be at your best, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, a veneer of logic can, can bring us into all sorts of strange places. And I'll bring you to another one. Um, 
I, I, any mathematicians in the audience, I've just put that up because I can never remember it. This is, I won't go into all, there's so many different ones and I, I talk about them a bit in the book, but one of my favorites is the converse error. And you hear it in arguments all the time. Um, but one of the things I love about it is basically just because P implies Q, Q does not necessarily imply P. So the classic example where I've put all these 9-11 uh, truthers and I'll talk about my, my link to them in a while, that I am one. No, just kidding. Um, but this is a brilliant thing. You hear people going, if there was, I deal with conspiracy theorists in my research occasionally and in uh, some of my outreach work, and they're interesting people. But one of the common logics you hear, if, if you say September the 11th was obviously a world-changing event, and obviously a lot of people don't fully believe that it was, you know, what, what, it, what it appears on the tin. And one of the things is, well, we have lots of official reports. We have the FEMA report. We have the, uh, the, the, the NIST reports. We have all these governmental inquiries from actually around the world, because some of them were not just American. And the logic that the 9-11 truthers, as they call themselves, will then use is, well, if there was a conspiracy, the official reports would say that it wouldn't, wouldn't say there was. Well, the official reports say there was no conspiracy. Therefore, there was a conspiracy. And I wish I was, uh, that was, I mean, that's obviously very transparent, but that is the converse error, uh, uh, writ large. And I, I, it's, it's fascinating how common that is. I mean, I get a lot of emails when I do stuff on conspiracy theories and why they don't work or the mathematics of them. I get a lot of emails accusing me of being part of the conspiracy. If, if, if they were trying to disprove the conspiracy, they get someone to say that there was no conspiracy and you're saying that, so therefore you're part of the conspiracy. Like I got an email this morning that said I was part of the Illuminati. I, can't, I sometimes tie my shoelaces wrong. Like the bar for joining these groups is obviously quite low. Uh, I'm kind of skipping over. And we also have like, logical errors are great. We have, at the moment, I hate this topic. I, have, I've, I was over here last night recording a documentary on 5G. I have to go and do one for BBC in two weeks, and I'm doing another one for another publication in America in a while. 5G is the most boring topic in the world, right? And the reason they keep asking me about it is my main job is cancer research, and I come from a physics background, so I do a lot of um, basically ionizing and non-ionizing radiation. So I, I know a little bit about these two things. So I fall into the horrible wheelhouse where they call me for comment on it. And whenever they ring me and they go, we just want to talk about 5G, I lose the will to live. Because the highest energy photon that you'll get in 5G is 17,000 times less energetic than the weakest visible photon, particle of light that you can possibly get. So if you're scared of 5G, you should be terrified of light bulbs. Right? Um, it's, it's very boring, for other reasons. But one of the reasons why this happens, obviously, if you go very, very high up in the energy spectrum and you get things like X-ray, well, we use that in cancer therapy to kill cells. You can do that. It's high-energy light. Only, we only see a tiny sliver of the electromagnetic spectrum. And the kind of mistakes that people sometimes make on this is uh, the, it, the undistributed middle is the classic logical error here. So the first premise, all radio frequency radiation is electromagnetic radiation. Well, that's true. All microwave radiation is part of the electromagnetic spectrum. The second premise, some electromagnetic radiation can cause cancer. That is also true. You don't want to be exposed to too many cosmic rays in your life or, or x-rays unless you need them. And then the conclusion, which is where the distribution problem happens, is therefore radio frequency radiation causes cancer. Well, no, it doesn't, because that word sum is a very important word, you know? And that, that kind of, it, it, it comes up an awful lot. I mean, I know there's other arguments and there's other reasons for this disinformation, but it gets really exciting. I mean, I love the graphics, like it's play, silent weapons, and you get into a lot of conspiratorial stuff, and they also write great emails, really good emails. Not good emails. Um, you, but you can also get a fact out of context that leads us into, into errors. And this is a common one, and I, and I understand this one. So if you look at the data from any of, uh, this is from C uh, Cancer Research UK, um, cancer rates are rising every year. And I'm often asked by journalists, okay, 
does that work? So what's happening? Is, you know, is it 5G? which isn't out yet. A lot of people think, oh, is it this? Is it Wi-Fi? Is it, you know, is it fluoride? Is it toxins? Why are we getting more cancers? And that sounds really scary. Well, there's a really simple reason for that, because we have a lot less of this, right? You don't have as many people dying of cholera anymore, or tuberculosis, or infectious diseases, although with the rise of anti-vaccine movements, we're getting a lot more people dying of infectious diseases. The reason, cancer is primarily a disease of aging. For the most part, the longer you roll the genetic dice, the more likely something is to go wrong that leads to a cancer. Perversely, the fact that we're all, uh, you know, living longer is the reason cancer rates are going up. It correlates directly with age. Um, but that fact in isolation, I can then tell you a lot of other things. If I can tell you cancer rates are going up, which is true, I can then kind of uh, shoehorn in a lot of misconceptions and myths behind it. So we have to be weary of facts, or wary, weary as well, of, of facts in isolation for sure, right? And we're very easily swayed by anecdote as well. This is a horrible case. Uh, there was a psychic in America called Sylvia Brown, who some of you might have come across, anyone in the skeptics movement probably has. Uh, she was the most prolific American psychic. She would inject herself into police cases and say that she'd solved them. Uh, a more sober-headed analysis of her solve rate found that she'd solved 0% of the crimes she'd injected herself into. But one of the worst things she did is she would say things to grieving parents who had lost their children or couldn't, you know, on television. And this one was particularly horrible because she kept telling the mother of Amanda Berry that her daughter was dead. Actually, Andre was the captive of a man called Ariel Castro for several years until she escaped. Um, she would also tell, conversely, she would tell parents who had lost their children somewhere, had been abducted, that they were still alive when their body was later recovered, finding they had died long before it. Really horrible person, but the reason that worked is that she had anecdotes. She had little stories of the one time she made a prediction that looked vaguely right, or was vague enough to look right. And this is how psychics always work. They inflate their hit rate, and they downplay their misses. And because we, have, uh, we are victim to what's called the, the, the fallacy of, of misleading vividness, we remember that. You go into a, a psychic using cold reading and go, I'm seeing a man, M, chest pain, M, passed away. All these things are common factors, and eventually you'll identify it. Now, you'll get loads wrong, but you just downplay the wrongs. Uh, the same thing works, by the way, with snake oil. Snake oil, by the way, like, it's a great, I love, I deal with alt-med charlatans an awful lot. And one of my favorite things is the amount of different languages that have given rises to words for people who peddle this. We have a charlatan, uh, charlatans, obviously, which is French. We have quacks from Quacksalver, which is Dutch, someone who hawks salves. And we have snake oil. But snake oil once was snake oil, literally. This man was one of the prime uh, exemplars of it. Clark Stanley used to take a rattlesnake, he called himself the rattlesnake king, and he used to squeeze rattlesnakes, get some juice out of them, and say it was a, a magical elixir he learned from a Hopi Indian medicine man. Now, when the FDA was eventually formed, or the press, they, they actually looked at his elixir and found that it was mainly turpentine and mineral water. Um, and it didn't work, by the way. But the reason we go online and we read miracle stuff, where it's like, you go online now and you look up a cancer, and by the time you've got to page three of your Google search results, there's a rake of cancer cures out there where people are saying, it worked for me and it did this. Anecdote really sways us. It sways us more than any other evidence, because we are human primarily, and we react to human stories. So it's a bit of an issue here. I'm kind of doing a whistle stop here, going through everything. We'll try to bring it into the Q&A later on. But we're also slaves to rhetoric. That brings us into that, right? So as Oscar Wilde said, the pure and simple truth is rarely pure and never simple. Um, and I want to give a, a horrifying, if this slide works, one of the things that we are most victim of, we like to simplify stories. We like to turn things into a simple narrative. We like to take many, many causes and collapse them into one. And at the twilight of the First World War, the German military high command were a de facto dictatorship. 
Now, it was plain as day to them they were losing. And they very rapidly transitioned to a prototype civilian government, and they signed the armistice, the November armistice. That didn't sit well with militaristic members of the, uh, the, 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 the German nation whose pride was wounded. And they started seeking reasons for how they'd been so thoroughly routed. And they came up with all sorts. But perhaps the most toxic they eventually settled on was uh, the stab in the back myth. Now, the, the idea of this was someone on the home front has stabbed us in the back and that's why we lost the war. The identity of the people who'd stabbed you in the back would vary with the prejudices of the accuser. But very quickly, it settled on a particular subtype. Bolsheviks, or more commonly, Jews. Uh, so, and this is, some of the, this is some of the propaganda from the era. You can see it's uh, always um, a, a Jewish stereotype stabbing an honest German soldier. Now, this was fringe. This was even at the time. Historians inside Germany and outside it were saying, well, this is, this is abject nonsense. This makes no issue. People who did believe this took isolated events, like there was a young German munition, or a Jewish munitions worker who laid down, who, who basically staged a strike in late 1917, uh, but it had no impact on the outcome of the war. But the fact that he was Jewish was massively amplified. By the time Hitler seized power in 1933, this no longer was a fringe theory. This became thought in schools as inerrant truth. And very, very quickly, uh, the, the, damage, the damage ensued. Uh, children were thought in schools that it was Jews who had led to the collapse of, which is total historical falsehood. That's a simplistic and reductive narrative. It just happened to be one that wasn't even partially true. Sometimes you get reductive narratives that have elements of truth in them. This one didn't even have it. But very, very quickly, and we have to be careful not to conduct the reductive, uh, to not to commit the reductive fallacy ourselves, but to, if you look at the, uh, the, the horror of what eventually ensued in the Holocaust, the level of dehumanization that was brought about by this myth must have played some role in that. So these have real consequences. When you try to simplify a narrative down to a, a story, and you, particularly when you fictionalize parts of that, it does, and it does lead to, a, we, we currently see it now at the moment, actually. Our political narratives at the moment are very much polarized and quite frightening in that regard. And you see people trying to reduce complicated things down to simple narratives, and that is almost always a cause for alarm. Actually, pretty much always. Um, this guy here, does anyone know who this, this fella is? Do you know who the person beside him is? El McPherson, yes. Yeah, he's now going out with El McPherson. Andrew Wakefield's name will be familiar to a lot of you in London because most of his damage happened here. Uh, in 1998, Wakefield claimed that the MMR vaccine was linked to measles. It has been thoroughly and utterly discredited. He's been exposed as a fraud who was taking money to make these claims, and he was struck off the register. I, I, I've, I've dealt with the man a few times, and I, he makes my blood boil, so I'm going to try and keep it to a minimum. He's doing very well for himself, as you can see. Uh, he's still, uh, he's still the, the pride of the, the anti-vaccine movement. But here's the thing about it. The rumor took hold not so much because Andrew Wakefield said it, which in part was the reason, but because there was a causal relationship or what people thought was a causal relationship. So people would realize that their children who were diagnosed with autism would start displaying traits of this just after or close to the time they were vaccinated. And people thought, oh, well, because that followed this, this must have caused this. Of course, that's not the case. Uh, I wore my blue, blue jumper two days ago and it was raining in Dublin the day after. My blue jumper did not make it rain, I don't think. We'd have to do more experiments. But um, the point is we knew this wasn't the case, but it was... Now, the other thing is it was available to people. 
So we people had forgotten the damage that measles, mumps, rubella, all these diseases did. What was available to them was autism. They were reading about it. The diagnostic criteria for autism had actually widened. So kids that would once upon a time have been institutionalized were now back in public. So people saw this as an autism epidemic, when in fact it was just a simple reshuffling of, of how we did things. These two, and this is called the availability heuristic. We weigh information that is available to us, things that are easy for us to access with a higher weighting than things that require a bit of reflection. We like to react rather than reflect. Wakefield did serious damage. Uh, vaccination rates in part of North London hit 62%. You need 95% for herd immunity. Uh, the average case of measles has an or naught of 12 to 18, which means it infects 12 to 18 other people. So very quickly, it's a disease that becomes endemic. Um, within a year of this happening, children, uh, I think three children died in Dublin, several more died over here. And if you look at the figures now, this graph terrifies me. Because we live in an age of, of well, here's measles cases in Europe over the last few years. Have a look at last year. In 2016, we had about 4,000 cases. Uh, last year, we had 87,592, right? Why is that happening? Unfortunately, a mixture of complacency about what vaccination prevents, and also the fact that we have a very active online anti-vaccine movement perpetuating disinformation and inducing vaccine hesitancy. Parents get afraid, and they don't immunize their children, and this is what the consequences are. So we need to be careful of rhetoric that is designed to bamboozle us. We're also misguided essentialists. All these people are horrible. Um, so we're, we're seeing a rise in white supremacy, right? And we're seeing a little, it's, it's, it's been around a long time, but it's certainly become more mainstreamed. We're seeing it in America, we're seeing it around, and a lot of it's anti-immigrant, very, very anti-immigrant, right? Now, I want to just draw your attention to this diagram up here. This is um, uh, one of these racial caricatures that was very popular in America around the time of the Irish famine. And what you'll actually notice is the Irish are considered a separate race than other white people. Now, that's interesting. Um, this is a notion we'd find ridiculous today. I mean, we, we, us pasty-faced Irish people look exactly like you pasty-faced English people, although you know, we're getting more cultural diversity, which is good. But the interesting thing about it, these, what unites all these white supremacists is a sense of obviously wanting to feel you know, like they're, they're better than everyone else, which, you know, it's funny how the worst human beings tend to be white supremacists and they want to feel special, but that's neither here nor there. But what they think is that there's something essentialistic, there's something special about white skin as a defining characteristic. But the joke is really on them, for white skin is only about 5,800 years old, and to get it to be where it is now required sustained interbreeding of populations from the Far East, populations from Central America, sorry, Central Europe. Uh, it was really a lot of uh, crossbreeding. So instead of being this pure, natural essence that, we, that, that these supremacists seem to think it is, it is in fact, we're all mongrels. And they can't deny that. But the essentialism itself, that there's something special about that, is a really poisonous narrative. Because if, if, if these things aren't, there's nothing special about having white skin. It doesn't make you, I mean, as homo sapiens, we are essentially the same. We, we, there's more diversity in a pack of chimpanzees than there are across the, across the entire human race. We are an incredibly inbred species. You're never more than, I believe, it's six or seven cousins from someone. So, you know, keep that in mind the next time you're getting amorous with someone, that you're probably related. And that's fine. But here's the thing. It, it also, unless you have a very attractive cousin, I mean, let's, uh, <laughs> let's not judge anyone here. But here's the thing. Essentialism as a reductive thing, that there's something special about this. There's an essence of it. Unless there actually is something that unifies those categories, 
then there is falling to reductive thinking in that regard is is really toxic. And I think the white supremacist movement is a lovely example of that because they're ignorant both of the history of how that particular mutation even arose and also seem to think there's something special about it when in reality there is no essential list of traits that having white skin gives you relative to everything else. Um, you also have beautiful straw manning. When we get rhetoric, we love straw manning. And evolution is the classic ancient example of this. So you still deal with, not over here as much, but a little bit in America. You know, if, if evolution is real, why are there still monkeys? Well, yeah, it's because evolution, and I, I know I'm talking to an audience who know this inside out. So, you know, obviously we had an ape-like predecessor who split in two branches. Um, obviously the classic heat, I, have a little, I don't know, who, I, I wish I could credit that cartoon, but I couldn't find the cartoonist's name, but I just enjoyed it. There was a very famous uh, debate in the uh, Oxford Museum, as it was, um, back in the 1800s. And Richard Owen, who set up the, I think the British Museum, was it? Ri and also named dinosaur. Richard Owen was a bastard. Utter bastard, right? He was a really, I, I write about him in the book, he was a real cruel man. But he didn't like Darwin because Darwin was getting more attention than him. So what he started doing is he started spreading the rumor that, because originally when the, on the Origin of Species came out, it wasn't that controversial. Richard Owen made sure that it was controversial because he was, he didn't like Darwin much. So he started spreading the rumor that Darwin was saying that man came from monkeys. And he deliberately coached the Bishop Samuel Wilberforce to say that. And uh, Thomas Huxley got very annoyed about it. So he said, tell me, Huxley, are you descended from a monkey on your mother or your father's side? And uh, it got very uh, rambunctious when Huxley said, I'm not ashamed to have a monkey for my ancestor, but I would be ashamed to be connected with a man who uses his talents to obscure the truth. And in the end, the Ad Admiral Fritz Roy, who'd been Darwin's traveling companion, started banging a giant Bible, demanding everyone there accept the word of God, and the thing ended in, like, basically chaos. So that debate was productive. Um, but this is the thing, it's, it's a misrepresentation of position to make it easier to ridicule. So strawmanning another position is, is a classic rhetorical trick. The one I did like, and I just saw this, I said, you know, if we evolve from monkeys, why are there still monkeys? If we all have Google, why are there still so many people asking <laughs> stupid questions? <laughs> Whatever, right. And, and, and straw manning is a weird thing. So obviously being in, in cancer, I get asked an awful lot about cannabis. You know, you see all these CBD shops setting up everywhere and they're making all sorts of miraculous claims and I can tell you, they're nonsense. But people want to spend 30 quid on, on what is a food flavoring? Well, go ahead, you know, knock yourself out, but it's not going to cure you of anything. But one of the most irritating things for me is, firstly, this is, is, this is all nonsense. Please do not take any... If, this, if anyone takes a photo of this slide, it'll look like I'm saying this is good. It is not good. It's bad. Uh, but these are the kind of claims that are very common. And one of the biggest frustrations I had with this personally was, 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 was misrepresentation. There was an act in front of the Irish Parliament in 2017 to legalise cannabis for ostensibly for medical use, except that it was already legal for medical use, and the bill that was put forward was essentially about making it available for recreational use. Now, I have no problems with that, but they were making medical claims to substantiate a recreational use. And because Muggins here, the journalists have my phone number, I got dragged into that. One of the most interesting things we saw about that, the bill was eventually defeated because it was a terrible bill. It would have jeopardized patients' health for a few reasons. Um, it was then respun as us wanting to cover up, you know, uh, the, the or, or basically that we didn't care about patients, when in fact, it was a total misrepresentation of our argument to say that. But one of the classic arguments they used to show in their argument that, uh, that cannabis did work against cancer, which particularly annoyed me, uh, was that you can use THC, the psychoactive component in cannabis, to kill cancer cells in a Petri dish. And you can. You can also sneeze on them, or turn the heating up a little bit, or put a tiny bit of bleach in, or put a bit of water in. It turns out killing cancer cells in a Petri dish is very, very easy to do. Killing them inside a human without killing the human is slightly more complicated. 
So they were using, it was a total straw man misrepresentation. They were using that to bolster their argument that this was a curative substance, when in reality, it was a total misrepresentation of the evidence base. And it still goes on online all the time. I mean, um, it's funny, when, they, when they're not too stoned, I get emails off them and they're, they're, like, they're, they're usually quite angry. I thought it was meant to make you mellow. I don't know. Anyway, um, but the reason I get really annoyed about it is, is, is it sounds like harmless. What's going to happen? Well, actually, it isn't harmless. Um, patients that take this advice, people with cancer, tend to delay or even go off their treatments. And there's good data emerging that that kills them a lot sooner. This is a Kaplan-Meier survival curve. Uh, this is using lumping all complementary medicines. It's actually worse for other ones, but I just I could only find this graph for some reason. I could find the other one, but I was too lazy to put it in. But essentially, you have the yellow curve is people that uh, subscribe to these complementary therapies, of which CBD or cannabis oil is one of the major ones, and people that don't. And very quickly on, within a five, five years of diagnosis, you have a lot more people dead in that group. And that's after you control for severity of, 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 of the condition they had. So you can then put this down to the fact that if you delay your treatment and don't listen to your oncologist or take something else, you die earlier. So I have a problem with these bullshit immersions on a personal level as well. Section three, but you see, why do we make these mistakes? Well, if you look at the cannabis people, it's because they already believe something about this. You know, they already want to believe it's true. So obviously we have to figure that human psychology matters a lot. If you want to go to a pub and start a row, run in and just mention something about Brexit, run out and see people that are in different ideological camps twist the same facts to fit different narratives. So why do we do that? Well, let's have a look. Let's start with a UFO. Oh, sure. Yeah, sorry, sorry, you're, you're right, I, I'm not being consistent if I don't read it as well. So I said, um, our own faults are those which we are the first, or first to detect and the last to forgive in others, by Letitia Elizabeth Landon. Um, it's an interesting quote, because we're very good at pointing the finger at other people when we're doing the exact same thing as they're doing at times. So one of the first things I want to talk about is a UFO cult. Uh, I love this quote, by the way. This is a guy called Leon Festinger, and he says, a man with a conviction is a hard man to change. Tell him you disagree and he turns away. Show him facts or figures and he questions your sources. Appeal to logic and he fails to see your point. And we've all been in that situation, haven't we? Having an argument with someone and it feels like that checklist, right? Don't worry about this big list here. I put that up because I wanted to remember what's on the list. That's just laziness on my behalf. I don't need to read that. Leon Festiger was a psychologist in the 1950s. And um, he wanted to understand why people don't always make rational decisions. Uh, which is a big area, by the way, but he was getting into it in the early days. And he suddenly saw an ad in the newspaper about a UFO cult. And they believed the world was going to end on the 21st of December, 1954. And they were in his town. And he's like, brilliant, let's join this cult. Right, bit of crack. Uh, he actually didn't do it himself. He sent one of his postdocs or postgrads, because that's what academics do. Um, and they joined the cult. And they weren't, they, they, the cult started as very publicity shy. Uh, and they really believed they were getting messages from the planet Clarion, and they had a prophet who was... Uh, L. Ron Hubbard was from, from Scientology was briefly involved with them, uh, and then cannibalized some of their sci-fi ethic later on, but let's... Anyway, off, um, off they went. And as the date rolled here, people like, left their marriages, they, uh, they left their wills, they got rid of all their worldly possessions, because flying saucers were going to come and rescue them before the Great Flood hit the world. The clocks in the room were 11.55, and you know, the observers were there playing along. And then it went midnight, and nothing happened. And there was a great panic, uh, and they looked around, and then someone said, okay, the clock's obviously a bit wrong. That one says it's, it's only three minutes to two. By four in the morning, uh, they were in tears. And then suddenly the prophet, Dorothy Martin, comes in, and she goes, I've just received a missive from Clarion, and it says, rejoice, 
for you of all your great faith has spared the world Armageddon. And then something really weird happened. These people that were originally publicity shy suddenly became evangelists for their belief. They went out there, they were believing with a greater fever than ever before. And that was absolutely fascinating to, uh, to, to. And one of the things that had been discovered by Leon Festinger there and his colleagues was a thing called motivated reasoning. That if you really want to believe something that you will alter events uh, sequentially to, to amplify. So for example, if you already hold the belief and you, you don't wish to change it because that's cognitively expensive, what you'll often do is you will amplify things that chime with your belief while dismissing things that do not. And this is a huge and massive problem. And Leon's kind of cri criteria was for this to happen, the belief must be held with a deep conviction and have some relevance to action. Uh, the person holding the belief must have committed themselves to it. And this is a thing also related to an idea called identity protective cognition. One of the biggest problems we have as a species is that we think we are our ideas. We identify, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm going to try and use a football analogy really badly because I don't understand sports. I'm a Liverpool supporter. That defines me. Well, does it? No. It's, you could change team tomorrow. Oh, no, I won't because that would be a betrayal. It's emotively linked. But ideas are the exact same. You know, um, I, I believe in God or I don't believe in God, and that defines me. Does it really? No. But yet we all do that. So it is cognitively expensive for us to admit we might be wrong or to update our belief. It's much easier for us to deny anything is wrong with the belief. You see this with climate change, by the way. Uh, the people most likely to reject climate change are uh, hardcore libertarians who are big believers in the free market. Because in accepting climate change, they would have to realize that there are limits on the extent of their personal philosophy and modify it, which is hard, or they can just deny it's a problem, which is easy. Not so easy for the planet, unfortunately. So Festinger said the belief must be specifically specific and concerned with the real world, so events may be able to refute that. So I can go up to someone who denies climate change and show them all the data. So here's a data that says, you're wrong, this is definitely happening. And uh, when they're confronted with this disconformatory evidence, it must be recognized by the individual and basically ignored or downplayed or, or, or dismissed. And the, this is why they became evangelists. And this is why you have a lot of people evangelizing. The individual believer must have social support. You've become someone who needs to propagate your belief further. And that is really interesting. And, and we are all susceptible to motivated reasoning. I'll give you a classic example, though. What do these two people have in common? So who's that? And who's this? Okay. So any, any ideas what they have in common? Two arms. Well, actually, we could be here a long time. Eh? There's a lot of seminars in humans. <laughs> it's not a beard. I'll give you a hint. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. There are conspiracy theories at the death of these two people. And if you want to see motivated reasoning, one of the things, I, obviously because I deal with conspiracy theories so often, I find them kind of fascinating. Um, there was a beautiful paper done, and I'm going to tell you a bit about it because it's amazing. I'm going to show you the, the thing. Dead and alive, beliefs, beliefs in contradictory conspiracy theories. So people who were really big into conspiracy theories were, were, were told narratives that Princess Diana uh, was killed by the Queen and narratives that she had faked her own death to avoid the paparazzi. The people that believed one of them believed the, equal, the other one about equally. Like they had some kind of Schrodinger's princess, uh, you know, Princess Diana. And the same with Bin Laden. If they believed he'd been assassinated by the CIA because he'd been an American patsy, they also believed he was still alive working for the U.S. government at the same time. And what that really shows us is what really matters to these people was to have a belief in something 
that they had special knowledge. Their motivation was to feel they knew something when they did not. That is fascinating in itself. So I, I actually did call a chapter in the book Schrodinger's Bin Laden, and I just so confuses anyone when they read through it without knowing it, but I love that paper. It's so weird. We also have things with our memory. Uh, for example, we always think that we, uh, we are very good. We are unreliable narrators of our own life. Did anyone ever come across this, this uh, Halloween-y tome Michelle remembers? It was a woman who, under hypnotic regression, claimed that she had been abused by a satanic cult and had been all sort of... It was a major American seller in the, late, the early 80s. 1980 it came out in. The problem was it was so well-believed that it suddenly became uh, the books that they started training social workers with. Now, it turns out this abuse had never happened. That was very quickly shown, but everyone thought it did. So Oprah Winfrey was on TV saying that these satanic cults are growing, and, and it became the accepted narrative. Um, and there's a lot of case, in, the, in the end, about 420 people went to jail over crimes that never happened. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about that. This is the McMartin Preschool trial in Manhattan Beach in California. No, not the trial, Manhattan Preschool. And um, in 1984, uh, the estranged wife who had, uh, of one of the founders who had an alcohol problem and, and schizophrenia uh, claimed that children were being abused there and also her ex-husband could fly and was a witch. Um, and the American police, being what they are, because she was white, listened to her. Uh, and they went in and they questioned. They found, well, he can't actually fly, so probably not. But they decided to send out a bunch of flyers just to ask, get parents to ask their kids if they'd seen anything a bit satanic happening. You know yourself. The result was a landslide. They had, and they brought in a charity called CII, the Children's Institute International, to question the children, right? And this is the kind of questioning they did. They went, do you remember the naked photos? And the child goes, no. They go, um, why don't you think about that for a while, okay? Your memory might come back to you. Or they say, you see all the kids in this picture? Every single kid in this picture has come here and talked to us. Isn't that amazing? And we found out they had a lot of yucky old secrets from the old school, and they're helping us figure out the whole puzzle of what used to go on in that place. Um, and they said, oh, how about Naked Movie Scar? You, you guys remember that game? And the child says unequivocally, no. Everyone remembered that game. Let's see if we can figure it out. They led, and, and the children, subjected to this questioning, came up with crazy stories of underground tunnels, uh, satanic abuse. Uh, one of them identified Chuck Norris as one of the abusers from a lineup. Although you could well believe that, couldn't you? Um, it was crazy. One of them was robots and clowns and witches. And yet, this got convictions. 420 of the things. Um, there are, now, most of these have since been dismissed, but there are still cases languishing in jail. I had, just before the book was published, I, my hometown is a place called Scaries in, in Dublin, and I was out for a drink there randomly with a friend of mine, and I have an American friend who was over with two uh, elderly guests of his, and they got chatting, and they were from Bakersfield, California, where a lot of this stuff had happened. And I jokingly kind of said, oh, Bakersfield is, is famous for them, and they were for, for that, and they, got, they went ashen white. And it turns out they were two of the uh, two the parents caught up in this, and they it was just an amazing coincidence. We had a, lo a, lo a long chat about it. They were, they came to the book launch in the end. It was great fun, um, but they had worked with Sean Penn on a documentary to get some of these people who were still in jail freed because the American justice system is all that. But here's the thing: we are our these kids didn't lie. Their memories were manipulated by this, and all of us are susceptible to that. Our, our memories are kind of like a Wikipedia page. You can kind of go in and change details. Um, and also, they were, this is leading questioning. The really sad thing about it is a lot of those kids later recanted, but a lot of them had had these memories so thoroughly implanted that they actually became traumatized. So, you know, it's a bit weird. Our perceptions are weird too, though. You've all seen this before, right? This is a face on Mars. Taken, I think it was Voyager or Viking? Was it, oh, I can't remember which one went past Mars first. Anyway, it was taken in the 70s, and a lot of people see a face there. 
Now, all, by the way, the black things are actually uh, error. This is such an old resolution scan that the black marks are error points. It's like we don't really know it's there, so we're just to put a black point for an error. So a lot of people think there's a face on Mars. It shows that a, an ancient civilization lived there, chariots of a gods kind of stuff. Here's a high-resolution photograph of the same thing. <laughs> But we do have a, a, a parodelia. We do look for faces and patterns and patterns that aren't there a lot of the time. So this is why we get, uh, we get easily misled. And sometimes we take something real and get misled. Does anyone here suffer sleep paralysis? Oh, yeah, I do. It's great fun. If Chris French was here, he'd tell you all about it. But um, one of the things is, is sleep paralysis, you kind of wake up before your body wakes up. So you're still in full atonia. So when you go to sleep, for very good reason, uh, you shut down your muscles because otherwise you'd act out your dreams. People who sleepwalk do that. People who have sleep sex do that. And at least one French detective committed a murder in his sleep. Uh, <laughs> it was an amazing story. I have a bit about the book, but it's too long. I'll get into it. Um, but sleep paralysis is often accompanied by, it's very, it feels like your chest is being crushed a lot of the time. A lot of people get black mass, which is the sensation of people in the peripheral of your vision. Uh, when my mother gets it, she gets full on hallucinations with it as well. It's often family thing. I actually, I'm very lucky. I get it and know what's happening. So I just get bored. I can actually go back to sleep in it, which is a sign that I've had it for too long. It only lasts a few minutes. It feels like hours. It feels like you can't breathe. Um, and it, the German word nightmare, from where, 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 we, well, where we get the word nightmare from, was the sensation of your chest being ridden by uh, a, a rider in the night. And in all cultures that we know of, there's some kind of incubus or suscubi or creature that mounts you in your sleep and takes advantage. That, and, and all these things, a mixture of our sensations being all confused, uh, the fear that goes with it, it's totally understandable where we get these kind of ghost stories from. They come from a real process that we misidentify, which is interesting. Does anyone know what these men have in common? This is, uh, this is Michael Faraday, the famous physicist. That's Harry Houdini, the uh, chain model. Uh, this is James Randi, uh, the magician escapologist. And this is Michel Eugène Chevel, whose name is up on the Eiffel Tower because he was a chemist. What they had in common is they really liked debunking seances. So they were big into it, right? And this is a classic example of when we can be misled by our own sensation. Table turning was a big thing in Victorian England. People would get around or, or automatic writing or divining rods. Most of the studies that, actually, some, some of these men did a lot of studies on them. Um, Faraday did one, for example, an experimental study on table turning and found out that people were turning the table themselves, unbeknownst to it. It was eventually called by William Carpenter the ideomotor effect. It's the same idea behind dowsing or uh, when you play with the Ouija board, it's what you're essentially doing. Um, but it's, there's a modern version of it. Facilitated communication is, is one such example where um, a lot of, uh, oh, this, this is a really tragic story, a lot of uh, parents of children who are, are communicationally impaired in some way uh, believe that they can, they have a, a facilitated communicator who can help them unlock themselves. They've published books of poetry and everything else. But all the studies on this show, it's actually the uh, interpreter doing all the communication. And it's, it's it, the facilitated communication thing is, is scientifically debunked, but is still very popular. And I can, you can understand why. If your children were, were communicationally locked away, sometimes it's easier to, to believe in this. And there's no fraud going on. The facilitator themselves is a victim of this every bit as much. They really believe they're communicating it. This woman here, does anyone know who she is? Really horrible, modern version of it. This is Anna Stubblefield. She was an academic in New York University. She was using facilitated communication on a nonverbal autistic young man called DJ. DJ had the mental capacity of a toddler, uh, but she believed that DJ was writing her love notes, declaring his undying love. She published a book of poetry by him, uh, and she had an affair with him. She left her husband for him. He wore diapers, by the way. He was, he was severely impaired in a lot of ways. 
She's in jail now, but there's a weird thing of like, you know, how much has she misled herself versus how much it is. It is a strange story. How am I doing for time, by the way? Oh my! Sure. Okay. Okay. Well, if people, I mean, I can speed. Yeah. Whatever you want. Yeah. Yeah. I'm happy. I'm here all day. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll I'll go faster. Sorry, but obviously it's from there. Um, I'm going to skip, this section has, I, I talked about how we get misled by numbers. So lies, damn lies, statistics. Politicians use statistics in the same way that a drunk uses lampposts for support rather than illumination. Um, so this is HIV. It's, it, it, and we have a test for HIV. It's 100% sensitive and it's a 99.99% specific. Super good test. You go in, you're all low risk. Most of you don't look like IV drug users. Yeah, you're a little suspect. But, uh, you're, so you're all technically low risk. You go in and you get a, a test and it comes back and says you're positive. What are the odds you have HIV? Do you say low? Very low. Okay, anyone have a different answer? Yeah, so if you go in and get a positive HIV test, the test is 99.99% specific. Let's call that accuracy for simplification here. Any statisticians can fight with me later. Um, and you come back with a positive test. What are the odds you have HIV? Very high, most people say. It's 50%. Let me explain that why, with a graph, right? It's because the m missing bit of information is a thing called prevalence, right? So how common is HIV in people in this group? Well, about one in 10,000 people will have it. So let's imagine we have 10,000 people getting tested. Uh, one of them has HIV and 9,999 don't. Well, the person who has it, they test positive, almost for sure. In fact, for sure, because the sensitivity is 100%. In the remaining 9,999, because the test is really good but not perfect, you get one false positive. So now you've got two positives, only one of which is a true positive. It's 50%. Uh, this is called Bayes' theorem. I'm not going to go into the maths of it, but it, it fools us an awful lot of the time. By the way, if you were in a high-risk group, it's a very different picture. In a high-risk group, about 150 out of 10,000 will have it. So if you did the... Oh, wrong way. And if you did the same test for them... Well, in the 150 that have it, you'll catch them, no problems. And in the remaining 9,850 that don't have it, you'll get one false positive. So now, uh, your odds on having HIV with a positive test would be 150 over 151, or 99.34%. So this is why all this information matters, and this is why screening tests can be very easily misunderstood. I'm working a bit on them at the moment. They're all sorts of fun. Um, the classic example, do people know who these, these folks are? Roy Meadows, yeah, uh, Sir, Professor Roy Meadow, and Sally Clark. And to give you an example, when we get numbers wrong, numbers often decide how we understand things, and they decide court cases. Sally Clark had, uh, was accused of murdering her two young children who had actually died of, of sudden infant death syndrome, and the evidence that put her away was testimony by Roy Meadow that the odds on that happening were 1 in 73 million. And he arrived at that by saying, well, the odds on one case, one death from SIDS is one in 8,000. So the odds on two of it is like one in 8,000 squared, right? Which is fine if you're talking about coin tosses, but it's not so good if you're talking about things that have environmental and social factors. But that figure of one in 73 million was the evidence that convicted Sally Clark. She was eventually acquitted, and uh, Meadows' testimony for five other cases was thrown out, but she was permanently damaged by her time in prison. And when she came out, um, she succumbed to alcoholism just a few years after her release. So when we get numbers wrong, or what we think numbers mean wrong, the, the consequences will be quite tragic. I'm gonna make that section really short, just uh, <laughs> getting too much numbers. But again, I mentioned reporting and media there. So we're talking about how we understand something. And this is the, the section five. Uh, newspapers are seemingly unable to discriminate against a bicycle accident and the collapse of civilization. And that was George Bernard Shaw. And we see that. We have classic examples of what we call false balance. 
if you look at major newspapers publishing climate science misinformation, so scientifically climate change is pretty much incontrovertible. And yet, you read the Wall Street Journal, and it has, uh, this is just, just in a one year period, it has all these uh, very high profile pieces that will tell you, oh, climate change is not a real thing. So that's called denialism. That skews public perception massively. If we think something is scientifically uh, controversial, it, it, it implies how we feel it. And you can also see how, like, the, uh, how much they publish the, the false claims versus rebuttals. And again, you won't be surprised to find that this often lies, I mentioned earlier that climate change denial is highly correlated to your political opinion. You'll find that the Wall Street Journal is well read by people on very much on the libertarian side of the spectrum. So it's probably not weird that that happens. I'm going to go a bit faster. But dis uh, false balance is one thing, and we can chat about that in a while. And that is a real problem, by the way. But disinformation is probably a bigger problem now, and it's not a new problem. So this is, uh, you see the homophobia of early headlines. This is amazing. When AIDS first started becoming a thing, it was known as GRID, gay-related gay immune deficiency. And this is one of the first headlines about it, a rare cancer seen in 41 homosexuals. And I have this headline, homos prone to rare cancer. Jesus, can you imagine publishing that in this day and age? Um, but what happened, the third headline is the interesting one. So this is in the middle of a Cold War, and Russia, saw an Russia loved setting out disinformation. It was very good at it. And it found an opportunity. It said, hey, um, we can, you know, we can, we can get, uh, this is affecting America. We can have a bit of a go at America. So they used an, uh, an Indian newspaper to say that AIDS was a man-made virus. And then they reported that back. And very quickly, that became a real thing. And the, the urban legend was uh, well, perpetuated by Russia in a thing called Operation Infection, um, was the idea that this was a man-made virus by the CIA to get rid of undesirables. So homosexuals, um, you know, Hispanic immigrants, and I think also uh, there was uh, basically poor black people in America who were disproportionately hit by AIDS. To this day, 50% of African Americans still believe there's some truth to that rumor. Uh, it backfired horribly on Russia, though, because reality doesn't really care what you believe. And AIDS came to Russia in a big way in 1986, and they had to ask the help of American virologists, who had already basically cracked antiretroviral therapies at that stage. And the political, me uh, the political memo that was sent was, when you stop talking shit about this, we might send you some help. And Gorbachev was very unhappy with that, but he eventually did. And Russia apologized in 1992, but to this day, because they had a delay on it, Russia have a higher HIV infection rate. And it backfired in South Africa. You might remember in uh, South Africa, they, have, they had a health minister who subscribed to this theory and decided to get rid of antiretrovirals and give them garlic and beetroot. And they reckon that led to 343,000 preventable deaths. So what I'm trying to get point is disinformation we, we consider a very internet age problem. It's been going on for ages. The internet has just made it so much easier. You don't have to buy a newspaper anymore to send out disinformation. You set up a troll factory in St. Petersburg. Uh, you see stuff like this as well. Anyone know who this is? Belle Gibson? Miraculous, survived, recovered from all the terrible cancer, and uh, she had a little rake of cookbooks, and it was very exciting. And then it turned out she never had the cancer. She made the whole thing up, right? Uh, and she'd been praised in Elle and the Cosmopolitan, Wall Street Journal, everything. And uh, she'd made millions off this. But one of the interesting things about it is the reason she became a celebrity is because it was reported uncritically. And this is a kind of the illustration I'm trying to make. You've also maybe come across this man, a guy called Joseph Mercola, the most popular health website in the world, alternative health website in the world, full of fantastic, scary headlines like this. 
You know, is your bra causing cancer? That's why I don't wear one. You just be careful. <laughs> um, you know, all, nonsense. But this website gets far more traffic uh, than, than, say, reputable sources. Mercola made about 10 million last year selling nonsense to people. I love this one, how your thoughts can cause or cure cancer, because it reminds me of like summoning the form of the destroyer in Ghostbusters. I was very tired when I put that slide together. It works in my head, don't worry. Uh, the problem is, cancer is a very emotive subject. I, I, I mean, obviously, it's an interest of mine. And the way it's covered in media, don't worry, also, it, when Kylie Minogue's breast cancer uh, scare was covered, requests for mammogram went up by 40% in Australia. The problem is they went up on young women who don't benefit from mammograms and actually suffer from them. Uh, David Avocado Wolf, some of you will come across him and his stupid hair, uh, he's often on Facebook to his audience of 12 million people hawking pseudoscience. But 12 million is a substantial audience. Uh, the Oprah effect means that anything that Oprah says is good sells out. Unfortunately, Oprah has a long habit of selling you know, pseudoscience is good, and that's a bit of an issue. And after Jade Goody's diagnosis and death from cervical cancer, uh, smear requests hit a high. And then, this is interesting, this shows you why this kind of coverage matters. They hit a high, but only a few years later, they'd hit a 19-year low. And that shows you this availability heuristic again. It had, it, it had a resonance, but that half-life of celebrity is, is relatively short. Uh, why do people perpetuate claims for this, by the way, that I'm often asked? Well, partly because they're scared and these are simple stories, and if you think you have a magical cure for cancer, you feel that you're safe from it. Uh, the other thing is what's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Some of you will have heard of this. Uh, the less you know about something, sometimes the more confident you are. Uh, and this is often people who know um, as, as very little have uh, an undue confidence. Particularly, we see this in vaccination policy. The people that uh, claim there's an MMR or autism link, when they're tested, know the least about vaccination and the least about autism, <laughs> which is interesting. And also, it's easy. You know? And the biggest factor, ego. You perpetuate these claims, you feel like you know something. It doesn't matter if you're proposed by an expert. And there's, there's a rake of interesting research coming out on this now, where it turns out narcissism is the biggest personality predictor if you're going to become a conspiracy theorist or not. Because, you know, you feel special. Uh, I'm going to finish off. This is the last section, so good. As Richard Feynman says, science is a way of trying not to fool yourself, and the first principle that you must, is not, that you must not fool yourself and that you are the easiest person to fool. So um, here's the kind of stuff that we see online that looks like it's science. Here's an anti-vaccine claim. Here's a man-made hoax. Cancer is a fungus. Fluoride is killing our children. These are just some of And they look kind of sciencey. They have references and stuff. It's very convincing if you don't know what science is. Um, but the problem is, this is what Feynman described as cargo cult science. Now, the cargo cults, by the way, you might have heard of these, were when, when World War II was raging and the Japanese and Americans went to these islands in the South Pacific and set up bases, the natives there had never seen the wonders of technology, right? And they saw these magical airdrops and this and that thing, and it took on religious significance. And then as soon as the, uh, the American and the Japanese forces left, they tried to replicate what they had seen by building grass radar towers, uh, you know, goggles made out of bamboo, planes made out of bamboo, and yet the cargo never came, right? Because they had missed something fundamental. They had got the aesthetic, but they'd missed what was happening. And these kind of claims, and this is where learning to different science and pseudoscience, I'm gonna skip a lot of it because we are a bit over time. Um, <laughs> you'll just have to buy the book now. <laughs> but um, but there, there, it is awfully hard to do, and something that has a veneer of science can confuse us with it, right? I'll give you an example here. Here's, um, this is Neon Roberts, and this is Sally Roberts. When Neon had a brain tumor when he was uh, seven years old and needed radiotherapy, and you might remember this, it was 2012, I think, and his mother abducted him 
because she didn't believe in radiotherapy. And there was a manhunt, four days, and they eventually got him. His father obviously wanted him to get radiotherapy. But Sally Roberts didn't believe in it, right? Because she'd gone online and Googled some stuff. Uh, he had a mellow, um, you know, it, it was really funny. The, alter, the expert she got had obviously just Googled what the brain tumor was, and they'd spelt it wrong. So that was one of the worrying things. And he eventually got it. He's doing fine. He got his radiotherapy. But it led to an interesting discussion. So she said, death by doctor is very common. But thankfully, because of the internet these days, a number of us have educated ourselves. There's so many other options that have been, we've been denied of, deprived, and that was Sally. Uh, naturalnews.com says the cancer industry is estimated at $200 billion a year industry. It goes on, you know, oh, think of how big pharma would be done for. Uh, the cancer epidemic is a dream for big pharma, and these campaigns to silence cures have been fierce. That's Joseph Mercola, one of the most popular websites in the world. And the Alliance for Natural Health say maverick cancer cures are suppressed by the mainstream. I'm just going to name check. The Alliance for Natural Health, actually, I, I want to get a business card of this. They wrote a blog post about me once upon a time. They, yeah, they used the most professional picture they could find. Um, they said, uh, he's young, he's hip, he's got cool hair. He's Irene. And you know what? They thought that I'd be insulted by that. I, I can look at, they said, he's a skeptic knight. And then I had uh, Brian Cox saying, welcome to the skeptic knighthood. And for some reason, Simon Singh saying, I used to do PR for status quo. Well, but this is, a, this, this is kind of common. But let's just talk about this, right? Let's do one science experiment before we leave, right? Let's evaluate these claims. Firstly, the first premise, there is a cure for cancer out there. Well, the thing is, cancer isn't one disease. It's an entire family of incredibly complicated, very different maladies, over 200 types. Here's just a few, a little sampling of them. You know, gynecological CNS, which is central nervous system, lung, uh, upper GI. Cancer is a beast that evolves from ourselves. So every cancer is actually different because it's a mutation of our own cells. So firstly, the idea that be a single magic bullet, and we know that some cancers respond to radiotherapy, some respond to, to immunotherapy, some respond to chemo. So the idea of a single magic bullet, already a little bit far-fetched, given that cancer arises for a lot of reasons. Premise two, a cure would not be profitable. There's a common idea that, oh, you can't, you can't patent cannabis or you can't patent, you know, uh, vitamin D. Yes, you bloody well can. <laughs> Here's the thing, that happens all the time. In drug discovery, you identify a target, you synthesize it, you extract it, you lead it, and then you sell it for money. That's exactly what drug discovery is. Most of the drugs we have came from something natural that someone said, ooh, that chemical works. The reason why, by the way, a lot of this naturalistic thinking happens, this appeal to nature, is it goes back to essentialism. People think there's something essentially special about something being a plant or whatever else. And they go, it has to be natural. Well, uranium and arsenic and Ebola are pretty natural, but I wouldn't advise putting them on your breakfast cereal. Anyway, and the final thing is they go, cancer rates are manipulated by big pharma. It's an epidemic. It's a dream for them. This guy is Hippocrates. Who, uh, you might know physicians take an oath in his name to this day. He um, described facial tumors that protruded centuries ago, two, about 25, 26 centuries ago. And when they didn't do surgery, they would grow to such volumes they'd look like a crab trying to escape your face. That's why cancer is called cancer, cancerous. So not a new disease, been around a while. Um, who here speaks ancient Egyptian? <laughs> oh, plebs, no, no. This is, this is the Edwin Smith papyrus. It's about 3,000 years old. It's describing breast cancer and how you operate on it. So the idea that cancer is, and again, we went back to start with that cancer rates are rising. They always say that. Well, we know why they're rising, because we're living longer. So we know that all these premises are kind of nonsense. So the thing I want to leave you with is just a few things. When we're confronted with a claim, the first thing we have to do is the reasoning. You know, does the logic make sense of it? Are we being misled by a ropey veneer of logic? Then we've got to think about the rhetoric. You know, are, are we being straw man a little bit here? Is this being misrepresented to make a point? 
Um, we also have to be cognizant of our own psychology. Do we want to believe this? Because you know when you hear a claim that you want to believe, it's much easier to believe it. But we have to stop ourselves and go, is that really what we want to do? If it's got numbers in it, we've got to be super careful. Because numbers persuade us, but they sometimes persuade us the wrong way. Are our sources reliable? Is this you know, a good, reputable fact check website or whatever else? Or is this a chain email that your granddad sent you? I mean, you've got to be careful. And also, I don't know why I put Jesse Pinkman in there, as obviously, um, you know, if it's a scientific-sounding claim, is it science or cargo cult science? What are we talking about? Um, I'm going to finish off now. I'm not going to try to do the French, because my French is woeful. But the translation is, love truth, but pardon error. So it's very easy for us, a lot of I've, this audience here, because you came to this today, you're obviously very sophisticated and brilliant people. Uh, and it's very easy to go, aha, everyone else gets it wrong. Do they, or do we get it wrong too? So. I'm going to talk about a story that's a little hard for me to talk about, but I want to finish off on it because it is important. Um, a few years ago in Ireland, we had a confidence crisis about the HPV vaccine, the human papillomavirus vaccine. This uh, human papillomavirus causes most cases of cervical cancer, over 90% of them. It causes anal cancers, almost all genital cancers, head and neck cancers. About 5% of all cancers worldwide are caused by this virus and the mutations it can cause. And we have a vaccine against it now. We can literally eradicate 5% of all cancers worldwide. And yet, in Ireland, in, and it, this just happened, it happened in, Denmark, in Japan first, where their uptake of the vaccine due to anti-vaccine campaigning went from 70% to 1% in a year. It happened in Denmark, where it went from 79% to 17% in a year. And in 2015, it came to Ireland. And I started getting phone calls about it. Um, essentially, there were claims like this, this horrendous effects, it's causing all this these problems, uh, there was campaigns. It got so much sympathetic media coverage that Ireland was not immune to this either, and it went from 87% uptake to less than 50% in a year, right? Uh, any of us who tried from the scientific side to advocate for it, I, I was front and foremost in a lot of those campaigns, and the hate mail you'd get, you know, it, was, it was phrases, you're not concerned about the poor, sick girls. Now, the poor, sick girls, it turns out, may have been sick, but it wasn't the vaccine that was making them ill. Um, there was a rake of well-known anti-vaxxers behind most of it. And you've got to remember that most of the parents that weren't vaccinating weren't, um, they weren't anti-vaxxers. They weren't dyed in the wool. They were terrified parents trying to do what was best for their kids. And the only stories they were hearing were scary stories about what the vaccine might do, which it wouldn't do. And this is the, the continuum of vac vaccine acceptance. You'll never convince people on the refusal end of it, but the vast majority of people aren't there. They're, they're unsure and they're scared and they were terrified and they weren't. And we tried very hard to, to change that from the scientific and medical perspective, and we had some success. But we didn't really have success until um, this lady came into the scene. So this is Laura Brennan. Uh, when she was 24, she was diagnosed with cervical cancer, and when she was 25, she was told it was metastatic, and she wasn't going to survive it for more than two to five years. She decided to spend her last days uh, campaigning for the vaccine. And her input was absolutely staggering. Because she put a human face on this, and she worked with the scientific and medical establishment, she was the antidote to a lot of those fictions. Because when people said, oh, why should I get the vaccine? she go, because this. And what she actually said, and I'll read her words, at 24, I was diagnosed with cervical cancer stage 2B. I was quite optimistic as there was something that could be done. With chemo and radiation, there was a good chance it could be cured. But two months later, it was back, and things are different this time. There is no treatment that will cure my cancer. There is only treatment that will prolong my life. If anything good comes out of this, I would hope that parents get their daughters vaccinated. The vaccine saves lives. It could have saved mine. 
I was very privileged and honored to be very close to Laura. Uh, Laura died in March this year at 26. But the impact she had was staggering because now vaccine uptake in Ireland has gone up to 70 plus percent. We reckon it's going to hit 80. And when people go in to say, why are you getting your daughter vaccinated? They don't talk about these groups anymore. They talk about Laura Brennan. And what Laura understood intuitively, and all health campaigns have to realize, is that we feel first and we reason afterwards. It's no good just winning people's logic. You've got to show them why it matters on a visceral level. And this did. Um, and, I mean, and worldwide, the WHO have adopted Laura's story as their central campaign for this. So even though she'll leave a brilliant legacy, even though she went far too soon. The final thing I'll say to you is, what does that mean? Well, compassion matters. First, we've got to pick our battles. You're never going to convince a dyed-in-the-wool anti-vaxxer or a dyed-in-the-wool climate change deniers. You don't have to. You have to work on convincing the majority, the middle ground. Compassion matters. We don't win by debate and shouting people down. We win by conversations with people who are amenable to having a chat. And sometimes it's about us being wrong too and go, oh God, I was wrong the whole time. There's no shame in changing our minds. There's only shame in refusing to when the evidence tells us to. And we have to use the right tool for the job in, in that regard. I'm gonna finish with this last slide. I'm just telling you, this is one of my favorite monuments. Does anyone know what this is? Berlin. Berlin. It's Bebelplatz in Berlin. And it's a little monument, you walk over, you don't even see it, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a hollow sphere with empty bookshelves. And on it, it has a pope by the, uh, by the, 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 po uh, the poet, Henrik Heine. And it says, that was just a prelude for where they burn books, they will end also by burning people. Heine wrote that 100 years before Hitler came to power, and 100 years before the book burnings that took place here on 10th of May, 1933. But I think that's a brilliant thing of what happens when demagogues, charlatans, and fools subvert our critical thinking. And they can only win and influence us when they stop us being able to think critically. Burning books is a naked expression of that. And whenever I look at this, I think we can overcome that. We can avoid the fate that our predecessors have had. And even though we live in an era of disinformation and it's frightening the volume we have to deal with, and we are all irrational apes, each of us have the capacity to reason and to do better, not just for ourselves, but for the entire society. And I leave you with that. And thank you very much for listening. And I'm sorry for going like so long over. Thank you. <laughs> I, I Hello. Okay. Uh, gents are upstairs. Ladies are downstairs. If you need the loo, uh, please help yourself to tea and coffee. Um, that was so interesting. Um, we have technically only got the room for five more minutes. <laughs> Go out and buy a book and come back and get it signed and I will talk to the caretaker about if we can extend the booking to do our Q&A. Sorry. <laughs> <It's all right. laughs> See, I had never timed it before, so I was like... <laughs> Is that, that's a bit better. Hello, thank you for sticking around. We're gonna do a slightly shorter Q&A than normal just because we ran over time. Um, for those of you who haven't been before, actually I haven't got my blurb that I normally read out, but um, please uh, respect our speakers, our staff and each other. Um, we prefer questions over comments, but um, just be polite if you have an interesting comment to feedback. Um, and yeah, uh, well yeah, so 15 minutes. If you have a question, raise your hand and then Stephen and I will come around with the microphone. So yes, uh, who has a question? I've really thinned out the crowd, so it's fine. <laughs>
Hello. How do you deal with con uh, conspiracy theorists? Mm -hmm. Say it again, sorry, I'm half deaf. How do you deal with, what is your personal experience how to deal with conspiracy uh, theorists? Jemison on the rocks, frequently. Uh, no, no. Um, it, it depends. Again, it goes back to, I, I often, I, I kind of, I adopt, I suppose, this model as well. I think that you have something similar with conspiracy acceptance, uh, same kind of model. You have people that are really deeply invested in it, and you have people that have just heard something, you know? So if it's someone I think I can have um, an amenable or an amicable chat with, oh, of course I'll give it a few minutes. If it's someone that's just screaming at me that I'm part of a conspiracy, there's no point in doing it, and I've tried. And it's, it's like, it, it's the whole thing about the adage with arguing with a pigeon, you know, or trying to play chess with a pigeon. It's still gonna strut around crap on the board and pretend it's one. Um, and as my following has gotten a bit bigger, I now realize I can amplify them if I'm not careful. So a lot of selective blocking or engaging with people that ask questions in good faith. But identifying whether a conversation is in good faith at the very beginning is really important. I wish there was a quicker metric for it, but I think hard experience of making a fool of yourself several times is a good start. I um, really great talk. I thought it was fantastic. Um, however, um, the um, subtitle of your, your book, um, uh, How Critical Thinking Can Save the World. Now, I kind of agree with that in the sense that if we all did critical thinking, it would save the world. But you can also, also say that about a lot of other things. If we all loved True. each other, it would save the world. The trouble is, we don't. So. What, what is your, how do you think we can get to a place where there is considerably more critical thinking done in the world? I think that we have to realize that even small impacts in this regard actually have a big knock-on effect. So, for example, I always joke, if I could just get people to stop sharing a story before they check if a story was true on social media, that would be enough of a change, uh, and that's an easy thing to do. I'm not expecting everyone to, and particularly not myself, I mean, I always joke, every mistake in this book I've made numerous times, like everyone does. It's identifying them. So there's two, to answer your question, I think there's two parts to it. The first part is, can we increase our ability as a society to identify what might be ropey logic? Because if you're aware of a pitfall, you're much less likely to fall into it. Um, the more advanced part of that is applying this all the time. Well, that's obviously a lot more difficult to do. But we don't need everyone necessarily doing it. Ideally, we would. But if you have a critical mass of people doing it, and it goes back to, <laughs> this hesitant is still there. It goes back to, you know, if you want to change uh, perceptions and, and, and what is acceptable or what is not, you don't have to convince everyone. You have to convince the majority. And once you have the majority convinced, it kind of, it is a self-perpetuating phenomenon. And if you have people asking questions or knowing how to ask questions, say you have a, let's say a man who became prime minister because he lied on the side of a bus. I, I won't name names or point fingers. But let's say we have that. That situation came about because those claims were accepted. Now, regard, regardless of what you feel about Brexit or not, that was one of the biggest single predictive factors of it. Um, if we had a society where the majority of people, just the majority, were better at asking, excuse me, where did you get that from? And in what context? And is that, you know, that wouldn't have happened. You don't need every, well, ideally, I'd like everyone, but you don't need everyone. You just need enough. So I think that's, the hand-wavy answer to your question. <laughs> Here's the thing, though. The, 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 the people have tried to do it, but I often joke, my brother's a teacher, that sometimes some of the teachers I've met are the worst at critical thinking uh, when they're teaching it. Um, it. It's something you have to live as well. You can't just teach and say, these are the scissors. You have to go, how do I do this in real life? How do I, you know? It's, it's not something that's stayed and should be in the pages of a book. It's something we should be using every day to evaluate things. So making it something that isn't just abstract and chin-stroking to something that is 
effective is, is a big is a big thing. And how do we change that? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> um, sorry, to follow up the, your, your response there, um, you're talking about majorities. And uh, something that I often find difficult to deal with is with when, when people who I agree with and who have opinions I, I share, but uh, argue from uh, a false premise, false premises, yeah, and yeah. clearly are lacking the critical thinking. Do you then contradict them because they basically are talking rubbish, although it is in your favour, or do you? Uh, and yeah, how do you deal with that? That's a really good question because that I, I, I would often argue it's better to be wrong for the right reasons than to be right for the wrong reasons because the schema, the latter schema, uh, is going to have you correct more times than not. Whereabouts, if you happen, if you're a broken watch and you're right twice a day, you're going to be wrong most of the day, right? Um, and one of, one of my edges, I, what I tend to do in that situation, I, I've certainly been there, particularly when it's political things and. Uh, I get, I get quite frustrated at times when people like, there's a lot of valid reasons to criticize situation X, but you're, you're adding an invalid reason to do it. So what I tend to do is I use a soft approach. I'm like, yeah, I know I agree with your conclusion, but I just be shaky about using it on these grounds. And I do it, I deliberately do it almost offhand. I'm like, it's just an afterthought because I've actually, I've hoped that in that discussion, I've given that person the tools to go back and go, yeah, I won't use that again. That was a because I find if I try to engage with them, we can end up having a shouting match even though we're on the same side. Whereas if I just say, yeah, you're right, I just, I'd be ropey about getting it from that point of view, but I agree with your conclusion. They still feel the warmth of feeling that you agree with their conclusion and you've given them the tools to go back and work on their arguments. So I think that's, you know, the, with kindness when required is the best way to go. I'm wondering about the potential drawbacks from critical thinking. And I mean, this, get your thoughts on this analogy. So if you're, if you're a hunter-gatherer like thousands of years ago and you hear rustling in the bush and you think, well, you know, you stop and you, and you, you read David Grimes' book for a minute and you kind of go, well, what, what is this? It could be the wind, it could sure, be a, sure. something, a small animal, or it could be something that's going to eat you. If you sit around and, and, and try and figure it out, you're probably not going to make it, even if it's one time out of 100. If you run, you're going to make it. Sure. And maybe that doesn't apply today, and this is where I'm kind of keen to hear your thoughts on it, yep. because I presume evolution has effectively selected, know, selected the people reasoning. who are going to yeah. run away and not going to, not going to be sitting and thinking. Sure. So I'm, I'm That's a really that. good question, because I, it kind of call, calls back to some of the themes in Daniel Kahneman's work, thinking fast and slow, your system one, your system two reasoning, for sure. Uh, one of the things about that is the, those quick kind of things, the heuristics, they work really well. For if I hear rustling in the bushes, and it could just be the wind, but I'm in a place where there might be snakes, I, I'm better off jumping, right? The, the opportunity cost of me doing that very quick response, apart from my own embarrassment when my friends see me do it, is pretty low. Uh, and you're absolutely right. In those situations, the heuristics, they're good enough for most of those kind of situations. But anything with any level of nuance, so anything that is a situation that we have to make a decision on, and I mean a conscious decision in this case, where you have to weigh up an argument or weigh up a bit of information you're given, um, that, the heuristics aren't good enough for that. They don't cut it. In fact, uh, I, mean, I think Kahneman himself says, heuristics are very useful, but they often lead us to entirely wrong conclusions. So you do need for survival, absolutely. Don't sit there and mull. If, if a tiger is running towards you, don't sit there stroking your chin, wondering what the tiger's intentions are, and perhaps you know get out of there and then have that consideration later on. Um, but I, I do think generally that's not the biggest problem we have now. 
but certainly there's a place I would not recommend sitting down and like amusing too long if it's life or death right in that exact moment. Although I'm very glad that people like uh, Stanislav Petrov and Vasily Arkhipov didn't give in to that too. But that, even though it felt like it was very urgent, which it was, it was still a situation where definitely reflective consideration was, was more beneficial. Um, it's really scary that could happen again any time if you think about it. But anyway, here we go. I'm not sure if that's really a good answer, but I've definitely I've, I've winged it enough. So. <laughs> uh, hello, uh, I'm asking about. Uh, I'm a radiologist, a cancer radiologist. Okay. Thank you for uh, about the cancer uh, knowledge. But I'm uh, asking about the Frankfurt School. Frankfurt School is a Marxist school. is very important for the critical thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, tradition, critical thinking, accumulation in the human history. Uh, I am asking, do you have an idea about the Frankfurt School and cri- critical thinking? So this is the, the, you're saying the Frankfurt School? Yeah, Frankfurt uh, School. My, no, I'll tell you what, my, 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 my academic knowledge of going into, uh, once upon a time for the research of the book, I went to it, into it. Um, but I get confused, I'm going to tell you straight off the back, I get confused between the Parisian School and the Frankfurt School. And I know one of them I really disagree with and one of them I fully agree with. So maybe for the benefits of this, would, would you want to give a brief comment on what the... It would be handy for me to remember exactly what school I'm either criticizing or agreeing with. But it would probably be handy for people that maybe don't know the Frankfurt School as well. Because I guess it's... To answer a very technical question, I think it's best we just define the thing first. So if you'd like to just say again with the Frankfurt School or the major no, tenets uh, of the Frankfurt School. It's a very big topic because... Uh, yeah, that's what I mean. It's a huge topic. It's really, so I'm not really sure. it's first it started start the Marxist critical thinking because well, the, before I, I the Frankfurt School Marxism, it was the dogma. After that, they criticized uh, yeah, I, that's what capitalism, I thought you were going at. So capitalist culture, Marxist culture. Uh, I, I have very little time for Marxism as a theory. As, as, as a school of thought, I have very little time for it. I have a major problem with dialectical materialism. I have major problems with Hegelism, but they're not, to me, they're not particularly relevant discussions in this. Um, a lot of people try to make them relevant discussions, but it's, it's I, I have, like, again, it, I mention it very briefly in the book, but I find those are, you know, they're not particularly practical arguments to have for the most part, and they are quite alienating when I try to bring them up with people who I'd like to, you know, have a discussion about the simple tools we can use. It gets very academic very quickly. And it's not my major interest to start that because I, I, we can have a chat about it later, but I would not have a, a great lot of time for traditional Marxist thought, for sure. I can see your disappointment, but it's not really a discussion I think we should be having right now. Um, I have a question. Um, so uh, we're all in this room really, really intelligent, and that's why we chose to come to this today, obviously. Um, but I know from my own personal experience um, that... Um, I can be, I mean, I give talks on critical thinking as well, but I still notice sometimes that I have made mistakes. How can we, in addition, or is there anything in addition to these rules, um, how can we identify mistakes that we're thinking before we turn them into actions and then embarrass ourselves? Uh, If I had a secret for that, I'd be very, very rich. Um, I think what we have to realize is you said, you you hit on something very, very pertinent there, though. You said, and embarrass ourselves, right? I think we have to learn not only to be more forgiving of the mistakes of others, but to be more forgiving of our own. There is no shame in being wrong. There is no shame in changing our mind. There is no shame in updating our schema when the information says we should update our schema. But we all feel shame. 
we all feel like, uh, you know, we go back to Shakespeare, I'm as firm and unchanging as a northern star, Julius Caesar, that was meant to be virtue. We call politicians who change their mind flip-floppers. Um, okay, they're often doing it for cynical reasons, I understand. But I do think we should be a lot more forgiving of our own mistakes and those of others. And that's why, I mean, I call the epilogue that, you know, you know um, love truth but pardon error. Because one of the most important things, it's really important, is um, we're going to be wrong more often than we're going to be right, I think. I mean, someone could do a quantified analysis of that, but we don't get right unless we start off usually by being wrong. And if you're right in the very beginning, you usually got lucky. It's like your broken watch. So I think it's much better to be more compassionate to ourselves and to other people and go, okay, well, I was wrong about that. No biggie. I'll change my mind now. Uh, I don't think we can avoid it entirely, but I think we can update it. And the, the embarrassment is probably, uh, it's probably a barrier towards updating it as well because we want to deny it even happened. But in reality, if we just were a little bit more flexible with everyone, I think it would be more beneficial. Um, is there actually such a thing as objective truth? As, as an affluent, middle-aged Westerner, surely my most rational course is to deny climate change and just carry on with my lifestyle. I'll be dead in 30 years, so... Well, sure. Um, th th there is an argument for that. I mean, that's not so the, the first question is, is a philosophical one, which I, I get very, I actually get very bored with some philosophical questions very quickly. But the reason why that is, you know, objective truth, well, science doesn't claim there's an objective truth. Science claims there's measurable truths and testable statements. And I think when you get into objectivity, like, I mean, this is, again, where I, where, when I read Nietzsche, I roll my bloody eyes an awful lot, because the arguments are, are mainly goalpost shifting. We're concerned about what we can measure. Right? And you can say that's you know, positivism and you can get into that whole debate. But if I'm making, a, say, a scientific statement, I'm like, okay, what is the most informed position I can take given the evidence I have to hand? And of course that evidence updates. The classic example you could use is Newton's laws for 200 years where uh, there was nothing that could touch them until we discovered quantum mechanics and that things moving very, 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 very small or moving very, very close to the speed of light. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I know about Popper and... Sure, but I, not yeah. everyone does, so and, I'm just, I'm know, just trying to put that out there. Light was a wave, then it was a particle, then it's both, and now it's both. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Ab absolutely. But the thing is that the, the frontiers of knowledge are always in flux, mm -hmm. and all you can ever do is object them with the evidence base and update. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can take a Bayesian approach and constantly update as you go. The second part of your question about um, is it more rational, well, that goes back, and you kind of touched on something implicitly there. It goes back to what kind of world you want to live in to an extent. Because sure, if you're only going to live for another 30 years and climate change isn't going to be fair, fair enough, you could say that's rational. But that's rational in the idea that everyone is self-serving, which is not necessarily the case. We have children, we have people we love, we have basic human compassion. And once you start factoring those in, it, it weighs your decision probabilities very, very differently. So if you go, well, do I want to leave a planet for, my, for children and grandchildren, whatever else that is habitable? Well, that's going to skew it as well. You're absolutely right. If you don't care about long-term consequences, you can actually justify an awful lot of actions. But if you take that to its extreme, you could get, if I can get away with murder, I should murder people because I get away with it. So it depends. We do have moral imperatives as well, and, and, and where they come from is way deeper than my pay grade. <laughs> slightly tongue-in-cheek. Um, Given that uh, there's so much binary decisions in the world between, you know, which religion you belong to, which political party you belong to, um, do you have any quick remedies for uh, um, a more rational approach to uh, uh, power decisions, if you like? 
bit if of a you general can, question. Yeah, sure. If you can murder them and get away with it. No, that's right. That's the last answer. Uh, no, I, I, I think that um, it goes back to identity protective cognition and it goes back to ideas. And, and, and my understanding of your question is that we, we should be flexible with our ideas. I mean, we all join parties, right? And I'm, I'm weird. I mean, I was a Labour Party member here for a few years and then I, I, I let my f membership uh, cease. But I often wonder if that was... Uh, England is a very binary kind of place because you have a first-past-the-post system, which for all sorts of reasons is stupid. But in, for instance, Ireland, where I'm from, I, would, I don't ever join political parties there because it is a... You almost always have some kind of coalition government because it's proportional representation. And I will vote based on the policies of that party, which is how I think you should vote. Like, for example, if you go, I'm a, and over here it's much more identity-related. People, oh, I always voted Labour, I always vote Conservatives, I always vote Lib Dems. Um, uh, except the last one, no one always votes Lib Dems. <laughs> That's they find all the time. But it's very identity, it's very tribal, which actually it shouldn't be. You should be, well, what policies do they have and how is that going to impact? Um, and I think, but I think the reason it's so much more primal over here is that it is a very binary system. It's all or nothing. And very rarely do you have coalitions. You had one once and you still haven't got over it. Or twice, actually, I think, in history, but one recently. Whereas most European nations have coalitions all the time. You're forced to compromise and you're forced to vote on policy and people hobnob. I mean, to answer your question in another tongue-in-cheek referendum, if we go back in time to the 2010 AV referendum and you actually voted yes for that, we'd be in a very different situation right now, I think. <laughs> Um, that's probably a good place to end, yeah. 2010. <laughs> um, thank you so much for coming in today and thank you all um, for joining us and sticking around for the Q&A. Um, and yes, we'll be back in two weeks. I think, off the top of my head, I think it's a talk on anarchy. Uh, my phone's in my bag. Um, so uh, I'm looking forward to that um, as a lifelong anarchist. Hey. Um, so <laughs> thank you so much for coming and hopefully see you again soon. And yes, uh, thank you again. Thank you for listening. Pub? Pub, excellent. Wait, wait, wait.